2: What's good, internet? It is March 13th, 2017, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio. We are back from Boston, and when I say we, I really just mean me, Austin Walker, along with Waypoint's own Danielle Riendo and Danica Harrod. And also joining us, making this our biggest podcast yet, Patrick Klepik. And Rob acting.
3: Hello, are people stuck in Boston? Uh, like no. Like action. I'm not you, but like, are people? I saw like lots of flights getting canceled. Oh shoot.
2: Well,
4: the we snow is not there day. yet. So yeah, we missed the the disaster. It's not there. Just oh, okay. yet. okay. Because it's
3: yeah, it's snowing here right now, but we're not getting quite the uh, <laughs> oh. uh, dump that is predicted for the East Coast. <laughs> so
2: the thing that's happening is your snow is going to hit our low pressure system, and it's going to be like, no, nah, we're just going to cover all. <sighs> yeah, because we got maybe, maybe it's just snow.
3: Do like four inches, but it's manageable. Like, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not really clumpy, but it sounds like you're getting the shit. Boston's looking at over
2: a foot. Yeah. 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 They're they're saying two two feet. feet. 18 inches plus. God, I'm it's, so I'm it's taller than this. my totally child. Fine. Yep. Right. You have a human being who is who is <laughs> smaller than the amount of snow yep. we might get. Or who knows? Maybe this will be one of the many situations, many times, where they say, oh, this is it. It's the end of the, end of the earth as we you know it. And then no snow happens at all. Maybe we'll get lucky.
5: Mm, yeah, maybe. Fingers crossed. I mean, I- I'm fine with staying home tomorrow,
2: though. Yeah, me too, because I'm exhausted so, from same. PAX, where we <laughs> yeah. were. Yeah. Uh, we went up to PAX, the three of us we we took a road trip we got a, we got a car from from work and we drove up and we got a crib yeah. also provided by work uh you can go see our video of where we stayed in Boston if you go to our twitter twitter.com/waypoint uh you should you should definitely do that i i really i show new innovations in bed <laughs> technology um if yep. you really want to be on the can
5: i just can i just please i was just going to say about that about that um, I'm very proud of us because we originally had some producers who were who were going to come up to Boston with us. And then they were like, actually, Danica, here's a camera. Um, you got this. And on our first night, we're like, all right, it's Crips time, baby. And that was the best content yep. we made all weekend.
2: It was very good. Uh, we do have some other footage that we need to do something with. Uh, yes. I had the chance to talk uh, to Jeff Strain, who is the founder of Undead Labs, which is making State of Decay 2. They made State of Decay, a game that I'm really fond of, uh, despite some some jagged edges, some some sharp, sharp less than finely polished uh, elements. Um, I really love that game, and so I'm really excited for, the, for this follow-up. And, and that conversation was great because it wasn't just like, Obviously, he couldn't do a features list because how many weapons are in the not. sequel? <laughs> exactly. How many? I avoid. <laughs> give me a, a round up. Twenty-two. It's 22. twenty-two. They rounded down. They went way lower. I don't know. Not twenty-two. At least twenty-two. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a bet. At least twenty-two. No word on claymores, okay. yes oh. or no yet, though.
4: Big question. Um,
2: so yeah, so we had to have a chat with him, and then and then we got to play uh, some stuff on on top of all the panels that we did, and, and on top of yeah. and on top of everything else. Uh, which was which was great. Uh, Danielle and Danica, Danica, is this your second PAX ever?
5: Yeah. So I've only been to mm. PAX Prime. Okay. So PAX, PAX, PAX West East is is pretty. pretty <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Please PAX don't West. don't look down Sorry. to the other PAXs. Come on. <laughs> yes.
5: Um. Yeah. So it was very overwhelming. It it was like um I've been doing anime conventions for the last like four plus years, um with Crunchyroll, and it reminded me a lot of an anime convention because it was just like very packed. There were a lot of families there. Um. Lots of stuff to, like, buy on top of playing games. Um, but it was it was pretty overwhelming, like, walking with Austin in, like, a single-file line because traffic was so heavy and having someone, like, grab his arm and be like, can I take a picture <laughs> with you, like, going the opposite direction. That was
2: literally the first thing that happened when we hit the show floor. It's it nice to simple. be able to see people. It's like, obviously, we didn't have a panel of our own. Um, but between uh, Paximania and then I did do a great uh, panel I was really lucky to work with, uh, Alexander Van Chestein, Tanya Short, and Catherine Cross on a panel about um, authorship and, and whether or not the, the intention of a creator matters in the work when it comes to interpretation, um, when it comes to ownership, when it comes to a lot of different things. We, we tried to be really multifaceted with that question. Um, and I believe there is a recording of that panel that will go up somewhere. Um we paid to have a oh, I didn't pay. Someone who organized the panel. <laughs> hey, we that's geez. a very yeah, that's a
3: very expansive use of the word we, Austin Walker. <laughs> it was.
2: It is. Well what happened was I saw a DM in the group chat for that panel and they said, Oh, we should do this and then I was like, Oh, we didn't have that conversation. And then when I got there the people who were they hired that they mentioned had been hired and were there to record it. So I don't know. <laughs> I was near people who paid for yeah, it. Yeah.
5: That counts.
2: That counts. <laughs> Mm.
5: And we all won. We all yeah, won at we PAX did.
2: That is true. We did all win our matches at, at PAX uh, Danielle and I were in the main event. Uh, uh, we were the Revolution up against the establishment, trying to make sure that those great tech workers who uh, who who not the tech industry workers, the people who, who the technicians who allowed video to go on screen during PAX video game championship wrestling, uh, his own Kevin something was also among them this this time. Brian? I forget his last name. I think Brian, Brian, something Brian. you're right. Brian, not yeah. Kevin. Yeah. It was Brian, uh, along with um, Adam and another guy whose name I forget. This is bad. This is a bad. I don't lip. know about this revolution, uh,
4: Austin. Mm, I, I
1: don't know about the revolution. get their names. Seems like someone talks a good game about the proletariat, <laughs> but won't actually deign to know any of their names. I
2: know a lot of. I know mm-hmm. a lot of. Oh, here's what <laughs> Back I know. To your coffee is, shop. <laughs> Here's what, <laughs> here's what I know. Uh, here's what I know. John Drake, like, broke his foot or something. He t- tore his was, Achilles, oh, was, I believe. Yeah. yeah.
5: He tore what? his
2: Achilles. For real. Oh,
5: that is But water. not doing he any... Like, let's, let's be
3: clear. That's an awful injury. It's a, a really hard to come back from. But my understanding is... I didn't watch this whole thing, but I, this is just uh-huh. what I've heard. Like, he wasn't... Let's not... I don't want people to think he was doing something super cool. He just stood up and then his foot he gave jumped.
2: out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's give you full context. He, yeah, he was jumping. He was jumping up and down cheering because one of his character, one of his his butler, his vampire butler, his vampire butler, yeah. uh won, uh their match and then and then in response John Drake jumped in the air and then just came down wrong on his foot. Shout out to John Drake. I hope your foot heals and that you get to live comfortably until yeah. then. So it did
1: it yeah. totally like window shade.
2: Well, I don't know what that means. I don't know that I want to know what that means. There was a long pause after I've said that.
3: <laughs> okay, we
2: all imagined what that might <laughs> mean. I was like,
3: I, I was waiting for someone else to be like, I know
1: that reference. <laughs> okay, so as I understand it, so there's a couple ways this can go because okay. I actually had my Achilles okay. tendon reattached like uh, a year and a half ago. Yep. Um, okay. So Ooh. you can have your tears where like the the tendon is injured, but it's still like doing its whole tendon thing. and It's anchored to uh, the heel. Uh, Which Uh is awesome. I hate the uh fucking next words coming out of Rob's mouth. Keep going. But but then it can also uh, tear completely, and it was a full rub. Like doctors will call it a window shade because the muscle that's anchoring is no longer anchored by the tendon, and it rolls up inside your leg like an old fashioned window shade. Oh,
5: buddy! Oh, oh no! Oh no! This is yeah. My 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 synesthesia is kicking in. Yep. Um. Yeah. I I was uh. I hope I hope John Drake is okay. I I have to say I was very proud of myself. Yeah. Because I got asked last minute it's by true. Aaron to be part of Paximania, and I had no idea what I mean I knew what I was getting into, but I had no idea what I was going to do and was was a bit overwhelmed because there's like all these really awesome people in video games and I'm pretty new to the like video game world and uh I kicked everyone's ass in WrestleMania 2000, and like, and to be clear, really you were on Team
4: New four York four. versus Team Canada. So right. you're a new New Yorker. You're in, like, yeah. you're new to all of this, and you you wiped the floor with the Pretenders. I think is is yeah. the real thing it was to say here.
2: Pretty amazing. Yeah. It was pretty yeah, amazing. It was pretty good. Um, yeah. It was as if you had read the control sheet, unlike everyone else in that match.
5: I sat there, I sat there reading the control sheet the entire show until I went on. <laughs> it's so smart.
2: That's the way See, to do it. See, this is
4: why you're Waypoint the Hedgehog. That's why. Because you're. I'm you're... Waypoint I the hate Hedgehog. This. I
2: can't. We're going to move on. Um, so, but on top of the panels, on top of Paximania uh obviously we got to meet a lot of great fans which was which was fantastic and we're gonna try to do something i think probably for for pax west or for some other event at some point we should really get all of us there and maybe we do a, have panel. a panel yeah i think it's yeah. time i think there's yes. a, there's enough folks under the waypoint banner at this point that, that we should get a table and sit at that table and talk about video games and we're gonna call it the way panel we'll have yeah. talks about that we'll figure something yeah, hmm, out that might hmm, be it right.
5: mm-hmm. i actually yeah. prefer the vice land panel yeah.
2: God, what am I doing with my yeah. life? What am I doing with my life? I did get to play video <laughs> games at PAX, not as many Ooh. as I wanted to, but but Whoa. the first thing I played. So here's a here's a hot here's a hot tip for you, convention goers. No matter what convention you, you have, my tactic is not to overbook anything, not to have yes. like back to back to back to back appointments. Because that's how you drive yourself mad, because you're going to be rushing from place to place, and you're inevitably never going to make up, uh, you're not going to make it to each of your appointments. But what you should do is, is uh, schedule strategically. So what I do is I have like a morning thing that ensures I will get up and get my ass to the floor, where I know I can then make the rest of my stuff. Even if I'm a little mm-hmm. late to my mm-hmm. first thing, it means I'm going to at least get there. So the first thing I did right away was a 9:45 a.m. Mass Effect multiplayer uh, demo with uh, Danica, and we got to play a little bit of uh, Mass Effect Andromeda together. What did you think of that?
5: I thought it was good.
2: You played I thought, I like, thought... some I Mass played Effect 3 as... multiplayer.
5: Uh, yeah, I haven't played. Actually, haven't played Mass Effect since Mass Effect Two. Okay. Um. So, it's been a while, but sure. it was good. I played I played uh, an Asari. and good. Uh, good choice. Yeah, and they added a lot of, like, improved mechanics and, like, some newer mechanics. And, like, you can jump really high,
2: which was fun. It's super weird that there's uh, jumping in that game now. Yeah, there's just like,
5: yeah it's, like, it's you so much. You, you go off so the ground.
2: High. Yeah, it's, like, it's yeah. like, jetpack jumping, too. So, it's not just, like... It's not just like a little bit of jump. It's a lot of jump, and then there's side dashes that feel almost like sliding around in the Titan in Titanfall or something. Like really, very, very yeah. f- like firm side dashes um, between this and, and Zelda. Added, like... The jump is back, baby. Oh, the
5: jump is back, baby. <laughs> Hell yeah! They also added like a uh, auto cover, so yeah. you walk up, you walk up behind anything that's like obstructing your path, and you're gonna automatically hide behind it and and when you uh hit the trigger button you're going to aim over it
2: yeah that's Um, the thing that i'm like very curious about how it feels in the single player because i so i played a little bit of ghost recon wildlands last week too and i played the beta a while ago and that also has that kind of like soft cover system where it just kind of knows if you're nearby and then like oh yeah you're in cover good enough uh and i don't know if i love it i don't know it's like I like the I don't like a lot of binaries in my life but what I do like <laughs> is binary cover systems. I like to know I am safe behind cover cuz I hit the button yeah. that says you're safe behind cover. Um, yeah. And so I'm curious to see how that works out. But at the same time, a thing that happened was you pulled a dude out of cover into the sky, and then I, as a Krogan Vanguard, just like charged at him in the air and blew him up and caused a biotic shockwave. And like, yep, I still like Mass Effect. It turns out I still like Mass Effect. So, uh, you yeah. know, I'm very curious I about that to game. Ask- yeah,
4: Structurally, in terms of the multiplayer, um, because the, the third game, which actually I really liked the the multiplayer in, mm-hmm. in Mass Effect 3. It was it was I think it was a little bit underrated. It was actually pretty fun. I'm you know, I'm, I'm certainly not like the expert in online shooters or anything, but I played quite a bit of it. Um, is it structured similarly? As in, like, oh, this faction versus this faction? Yeah, so and, you know, kind of having the same general game
2: types? We the only we only played one match of it, and it took, like, okay. 15, 20 minutes. But the way it was structured was very similar in that it was wave-based and that it had objective modes um, mm-hmm. on certain waves, right? So, like, uh, round three was go you know decrypt this capture code capture the point, capture or the something, point basically yeah. basically and then round 6 was go capture these six objects or devices or whatever um it was going really well in, cap- in in wave 6 let me tell you we were maybe Oh yeah we were maybe the best anyone's ever done at any game I have
5: to say yeah <laughs> uh... I have to say no one's ever no one's ever uh not made mistakes as much as we didn't make mistakes uh, we made
2: <coughs> very <that> <laughs> few mistakes at all um we had a yeah. deep understanding of the revival mechanics and mm-hmm. of teamwork no generally um yeah. and then mysteriously i don't know what happened but the game disconnected and so they they by for they I guess they forfeited they saw how good we were doing and they're like bioware was yeah. like you know what you just take the w on this one you guys got it
5: yeah um, it said it said network disconnection but i know that that was probably just a, a ploy
2: Right, you know well that's um, what, that's like it's like a network disconnection in the sense that whoever runs the enemy AI server back at bio or h q pulled the ethernet cord from the from the wall, yeah, seeing how yeah, poorly they are. Yeah. like how we have to go back to this games out soon, we have to reprogram the AI, otherwise we'll never beat the the amazing team of Austin and Danica, so I you know hm <laughs> just I'm so. I'm sure sure that's thing. exactly One how last it thing
5: I'll, I'll, oh sorry, Danielle, what were you saying? Oh oh Did no, I cut you, you off,
4: you go for it no you you know what you're another uh, Danny, you go for. it. <laughs>
5: I was just going to say that uh one of the last things I'll say about the controls is uh movement. Like you move very slow. Like the the default movement is mm-hmm. kind of like slow and crouched and you have to uh push down on the right stick to uh just sprint, like go full sprint. There's no like in between. There's no like just walking at a good pace. Yeah. And uh I I wasn't I wasn't super stoked on that. <laughs> That
2: that felt. I'm very curious to see if that's like character based. Is that you know just part of multiplayer? Is that a thing I can switch in the options so that I'm always sprinting? Like I, we didn't get a chance to like dig around that stuff. But again, we'll have yeah. uh, hands on that in the full game soon. March is wild. Like what, Patrick? You oh already God. written recently about how there are too many games coming Stop out. It. And
3: Stop it! Stop Don't even talk about it. If we don't acknowledge that the two. games of the next thirty days exist, then we don't have, They don't exist. They don't. They don't exist. <laughs> I mean, you've been playing Mass Effect's not out next week. Persona's not out in three weeks. Stop! It's just not true.
2: Well, Paul's from Pax talked to, to say briefly, like you've been playing Nier. You've been playing Zelda. What? How are you feeling about those things? Stressed out.
3: <laughs> Those games aren't done yet, and I have played nearly 20 hours of Zelda and only made it to a dungeon and said, eh, I don't need to do that yet, and then just went climbing a fucking mountain again. Do that dungeon. Which dungeon did you get? Who cares? I don't... this game is not about the dungeons. Well, I, re- I, I have, like,
2: mm, it, trust me, you want to do the dungeon. You get a cool thing for doing the dungeons in this game. Patrick. I trust you, but
3: I, I will say uh, briefly, I, I don't have any really uh, a sweeping pronouncements to make about Zelda as much as uh, as someone that if you listen to podcasts or things that I write about, like, you're... Especially given my life circumstances, I am usually very interested in games that are objective to objective to kind of maximize mm-hmm. my time, and, and Zelda, I have tried to... Uh, uh, pull back from that like uh, consciously and I find that um, uh, this game rewards uh, it is rewarding in its own right even when if you went back and bullet pointed what you did you could easily say absolutely nothing (laughs) and yet (laughs) <laughs> over the course of that hour i will have a bunch of cool stories or little things that happened that were just part of the systems and the environment or things some sweet vista that i discovered right. um that is not going to be part of a you know it's not doesn't check anything off my side quest list it doesn't add a heart to uh to my repertoire but the fact that a Zelda game, which became so, you know, I like a Skyward Sword for various reasons, but its linearity was an extreme crutch, and it's like it's part yeah. of I think the whiplash for this game, mm-hmm. as it, from a design perspective, it was them saying, I mean, if there's any uh, sort of commonality in the criticism of Skyward Sword, is like there's some cool ideas here, but holy shit, like back off, Nintendo, like you've gone too far down a certain path, and uh, whereas Breath of the Wild goes in the extreme other direction, where um I, those checkboxes I I don't need. I mean yeah. obviously there's a cool thing in the dungeon. I'll do the dungeon. I'm I'm at the front of it and which is why I switched over to Near to to at least play something else, but I'm I'm enjoying how much I'm enjoying this game despite the fact that I'm not doing the things that otherwise were the focus of any other Zelda game.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm shocked that I'm still playing Zelda. I'm at like hour 85 plus, <laughs> maybe 90 by now. Um and like last night I was exhausted, but before I went to bed I was like I'm going to do a shrine or two. And also, yeah. I'm gonna say that in my head, and I'm not gonna commit to which ones. I'm not like going to say I'm gonna go do those two shrines. I already know. I'm gonna give myself two shrines, and I'll just when I find the shrines, I'll do those shrines. And I ended up doing a really. I
5: got two shrines.
2: Oh, my God.
5: <laughs> two shrines.
2: Great, good. I'm glad. I'm glad this is my podcast. This is it's a reference for me. You and got the me whole alone. team besides That's Mike. True. What do you expect? That's true. Uh, the, the shrines I ended up doing was a cool labyrinth, like, ruins thing that was great, which I won't spoil more, um, and then one that let me do weird electricity stuff, uh, and completely fuck around with their mechanics in a way that I don't think that they necessarily intended, which was great. So, 90 hours in, I'm still, I'm only, like, 66, 67 shrines, and there are probably another 50 or something, so I'm, I'm shocked that i'm still playing this game but it's i
3: I feel like it's going to be a game that i uh am going to conscious like part of the reason i played i I made to the shrine uh, to the dungeon and then switched over to near because i think what i have to to fully enjoy that game and what it excels at i need to not look at it how i view other games which is a game to finish like you know, in a quick, fa- I feel I will undercut what is enjoyable about that game if I put in my head, I need to finish this the next week before Mass Effect is out yeah. so I can move on to the next game and instead treat Zelda as a game that I dip in and out of over the course of several yeah. months so that in the spurts that I'm with it, I'm enjoying it for what it's good at. Whereas a game like. Mass Effect is right. going to be more like Horizon, in which I I'm, can go from point to point. And uh, I mean, I haven't played uh, the new Mass Effect, but I presume you know everything indicates it is going to be within uh, that realm where there's exploration. But it is not the exploration that Breath of the Wild uh, um, is. And so that's a game like Near or uh, uh, or Mass Effect where I can jump into that and right. feel like I've accomplished something. But then when I go back to Zelda, it's a different feel. It's a different approach. And so it's like if I don't finish Zelda until sometime in april like I, i'm going to be okay with that because i think otherwise i'll undercut right, exactly. what's enjoyable about that's it. the way
2: to do it for sure otherwise you'll just end up trying to rush through it and be miserable how are you finding near so yeah. far how far into it are you
3: i that is a fucking a weird, weird game, game. <laughs> um uh it's it's bizarre i i really only unfortunately so this uh, the stream i did last week which the archive will finally go up uh i think later today um I I didn't play any of the demos so I uh when I the part that I played was like the bit that uh your your PlayStation lets you start jumping into as soon as it's downloaded some x amount of the the game right. data as it turns out I guess that was just the demo so it wasn't anything new for people who had uh tuned in and then also when you get to that point the game just says hey why don't you go download that other 40 gigs and I was like okay and then when I loaded it up this morning, I was like, "Well, I'll just pick up where I left off." It's like it doesn't keep your save from the end of that section, and so no. then I had to spend 45 minutes oh, play, no. playing the part oh, that I'd it's already a played. Cool part. Which, fortunately, I was going to say, like, "Come on!" Like the first 45 minutes involve uh, you like take hacking the arm of a giant um, uh, str- uh, like oil installation that yells "kill, kill, kill," <laughs> and then you rip off its arm and beat it to death with it. So you know what? Two times of that ain't, ain't so, so bad. bad.
2: Ain't so bad. That game is interesting. I'm like I'm like 5 or 6 hours in. I think that the world is fascinating and also I wish i had played it before Zelda because I keep trying to climb walls that I'm not allowed <laughs> to climb. Um, I like I think it's really cool. I'm not I'm not like shitting on Near at all. Like I think it's it's doing really weird stuff with the story. Um, the it's here here are the things I like about about Near Automata so far that I'll be as brief as possible. I really like that there is no like neutral perspective on the world you play as an android who a very very Mm -hmm. very light spoilers here you play as an an okay so humans in this world is at the start of the game i am so sure this will get more complicated as the game continues (laughs) um but you're gonna you're
3: gonna act like this already isn't complicated i know know. you're about to
2: humans live on the moon because aliens invaded years ago and Deployed machines to kill everybody. And so the humans retreated to the moon, built androids to go back to Earth and fight the machines to then eventually be able to get Earth back where they can then stage a a counterattack against aliens. Um, You don't see the aliens in the first five or six hours anyway, and you only ever interact with these machines that are not humanoid in the way that you are, or like they actually are kind of cartoonishly humanoid. They're like, they're like. Um, in, I mean literally, in some cases, look like animatronics from uh, an amusement park or something right like hmm. bulbous round or like little like little um, uh, uh, what do you call it toys like the wind up toys that look like they would just like shuffle from place to place, and then those robots, those machines like gesture at the ways that humans interact in a way that 's really grotesque and like extreme so like yeah they'll yell kill 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 all right i saw i saw one machine doing what looked like a sex at another machine <laughs> um <laughs> but not actually not actually i want to be clear those machines aren't fucking those machines are doing what they think humans do or something so like, it
5: wasn't it wasn't a sex it just looked like a. it sex. just looked it was, like it a sex. was
2: a visual sex it was like a pantomime right uh, like a,
5: a okay. pantomime of a
4: sex a
2: pantomime of a sex And that was weird, but the thing I like about all of this is that it's never like, oh, okay, of course, my position is, like, the neutral position from which I can see the world. Like, you're implicated immediately as an underling in this weird paramilitary group of androids being sent to Earth to fight on behalf of another group. Like, so you're always a little bit disinterested, but not, like, apolitically disinterested, like, like... I'm not. am not even fighting for myself here. Um, and I, I just love that there's no just like, oh yeah, the aliens are the bad guys. It's like XCOM is the inverse of this, where it's like, okay, I'm a human, the aliens are bad. At the end. That's super easy to unpack. Like, fuck off, aliens. I want Earth back. Uh, got it. Easy. I like how complicated this is from the jump. And I, my understanding is, well, that's not. You're not even. You're not even
3: including the the, the broader context of like near and how this relates or doesn't relate. Because I don't know. But like, go read an article that I put together last week <sighs> that helps outline how weird and interesting. Uh, near is and the original near that came out for which also 360, has Android, uh,
2: and also has like it's and math- yeah, well
3: like that's that's what I don't know yet like what the connection is between these two games so spoilers for near skip ahead thirty seconds if you if you somehow are gonna go play that game for forty five hours which you won't so just listen um, like, that game that game posits a world in which. The humans you encounter, you le- later learn, are themselves robots that achieved their own form of consciousness and built the civilization... Be, they, but they were created by humans who were killed by a a plague, and so like are the, are the, the quote unquote humans living on the moon actually just the robot automatons that achieved consciousness from the original nearest or the so they 're not actually humans they
2: 're from the other because that 's the other thing with nears there are also geists on top of the the robots that are different that are the actual human spirits of the Hmm. Yeah, we're extracted from the humans that died in the ancient, uh, like, the or red rather, red our current there's, modern there's time also dragons civilization. Involved because it also connects yep. to Dragon Guard one and three, but not two. Two exists in its own timeline. It's only only connected by a novella.
1: Wait. Wait, this is related to the Drakengard series? Yeah, Jaws. This is the same. This is the same whole Wait, thing. Wait, near and Drakengard are the same.
2: Same yeah. thing.
3: So, well, sort of. Wow. Like near, um, oh, no. there, there is an ending to the original Drakengard. Uh, th- th- this goes a lot deeper if you want to follow this rabbit hole. But the I'm basics link a is line that
2: timeline so that Rob can see. But you keep talking.
3: The the end of uh one of the endings to Drakengard involves you going to a parallel or alternate dimension, which uh, turns out to be uh, like modern day Tokyo. And then at the end of a boss battle, um, you on top of your... Do they call them dragons or dragon guards i don 't know enough about that series, but anyway, your dragon is shot down, you and the dragon are killed, and in the process, you end up re- like your body, which uh, reacts weirdly because you are magical and property uh, to the, uh, it reacts uh, strangely to the environment of this modern day Tokyo, thus releasing a plague which kicks in the events of near but it 's not like all endings of Dragon Guard are canonical to Near. It is just like e. ending just five ending of five. E. Yes.
1: e. <laughs> also,
2: Dragon Guard three is actually a prequel to Dragon Guard one, and that also only connects to Dragon one not through any of the endings, but only through a novel. So it's great. Uh huh. Wow. I have a
1: question about. I have a question about this timeline you sent. Me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Is it the
2: word stage play? So
1: yes, yes, that's exactly the part. That's the part where I'm getting stuck. I got here. Good okay.
2: news for you, bud, because there is video of that stage play, and that video includes lots of like women dressed as as maids with guns. Good. And that's the immediate prequel to Near Automata, as far as people can tell, or at least as far as people could tell before Near Automata came out. I have not checked in on the fandom to see how they reacted yet. People seem happy about this game,
1: but. So so basically, like near, mm-hmm. is like pushing the concept of transmedia to like the furthest yes. possible dream. Like this is the this is the Star Trek of transmedia uh, franchises. Yes, accurate. Good. Okay, I'm not even okay. sure it's transmedia
3: anymore. It is just it is something its own. It it's, it needs its own term. It's called near. Mm-hmm.
1: Also, okay. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay, where does, where does the part where Justin McElroy goes fishing fit into this?
4: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the best part of that first game.
1: I think that's the origin story.
2: I think that's the. If okay. you watch the Cataclysm, I think that's it. That was that video. <laughs> that was that video, exactly. God.
3: Also, near Automata is really fun to play. Um, it has. It, you know, because that was the big. Uh, it's, it's why I would tell people, based on what other people have told me, is that near is well worth understanding and going very deep down some YouTube and timeline rabbit holes, but then it is a slog to play. And, uh, that is not the case for near Automata. Like it has very satisfying platinum style combat that if you've played, you know, a Bayonetta or something like that, you're, you'll, you'll quickly, uh, acclimate to it's not, at least so far, you know, it doesn't have the depth of a Bayonetta cause that's not what it's, what it's going for. And i has mean, depth in different directions, but you're not doing a lot of like memorizing button patterns to string together uh, elaborate combos. cabos. Um, but it, it's, it looks beautiful. It's, it's a lot of fun to play. And I, I feel like be- between horizon and Zelda, like that game is going to get lost in a certain yeah. way. And so yeah. I, I've been trying to make a point of playing more near, if only to help give that game, uh, what clearly seems like it, it's due that it requires, um, Given all the other bigger games that are kind of surrounding, it's
2: funny games. you say that there's depth to it because there often literally is depth to it because of the way that the camera moves from being a third <laughs> yeah. person like character action game in the vein of Bayonetta to becoming a shooter like a shoot 'em up style like bullet hell overhead top down shooter, shooter yeah. or sideways shooter or like weird isometric shooter. Sometimes um, the camera does some really incredible things uh, as that game continues, and it doesn't. It does that in the intro, but then it, it totally will continue to do that. In boss fights, in like exploration segments. Um, also the music is great. Like god damn. Just check out that game. That game is Don't don't sit cool. on it. And the PC version comes
3: out later this week, which will pro you know, hopefully be a, a good port of that game, but it it's not like an overly tax like technical game, so my guess is that'll run pretty well on most people's I have, I have one uh, question yes.
4: about this game. All I know about it, other than the fishing stuff and, you know, just the general aesthetic of it, is butts. I know that butts are a very very prominent part of this game. Is it distracting? Is it like. I don't know that it's actually.
3: Prominent as much as the fandom I has see, made right. it. I see. Like, it's not like it's not something where you're like. Whereas Bayonetta like makes yeah. sexuality like an ex- a, a very uh, uh, explicit part of its cinematics and and the character of Bayonetta. Like in near like it hasn't was is it two B is that the character 2B? that you're playing I think as? So. um, it, yeah, like I, I'm playing and like the camera is often fairly distant from you, and there aren't like sweeping camera angles to like. You know, show off her ass, and there's actually a trophy that scolds you if you try and get the camera to give you an upskirt shot. So right. the game seems like aware of that. I I don't know how much that changes, right. Austin. You might be able to speak to that a little bit later, but it is not my you know if if your worry is that character does uh, sort of like design is going to be like uh, annoying and distracting, and and I, I, I have not found that to be the case. Okay. So far, in so
2: much of the game, the images that you see going around of her, like in like a like a like a swimsuit looking thing or like a one piece, yeah, uh, yeah. are only. You, I think what you, I think the way to get that costume is to use the self destruct option, which is like an AOE attack that destroys your clothes. I've never had to use that, <coughs> nor have Ghost I used course. it. Um, and I also, my under, I don't know, I don't know enough about the game yet to know if that also can work with the male character 9S. Who follows you around? I don't know if it happens to both of you. I don't. It's hard to say. I do wish. So Yoko Taro, who is the one of the designers, like the I believe the the lead on this game, who's the lead on on Nier and the whole Dragon Guard, the whole Dragon Dragoon universe, uh, is, is his brainchild. Um, I wish he would be a little more. Uh, I don't know what the word is I want here. Like I think there's something interesting happening with sexuality in this game. Um but when asked about why he why 2B is so sexy his answer is like oh cuz I like I like pretty girls who look I like girls. Girls. Yeah, yeah." Yeah, that was kind um, of what he said. And yeah. I saw some people on Twitter uh who were being very smart about this last night and I I want to say it was Todd Harper and maybe Michael Lutz, maybe it was all, maybe it was Paris too. I don't remember. It's a bunch of a bunch of smart people uh were we're saying like that's Better than than completely dismissing that question. Like, why do you sexualize your characters? Um, But there's probably a way more interesting answer somewhere if pushed, which is, like, that can't just be dismissed by, of course I make pretty characters. Because B is not Mm -hmm. just a pretty character, right? Like, she's a character in a leather dress with a blindfold on who can kill anything that moves and who, like, pushes around her, like, underling who is like a soft-spoken, soft boy, right? Like, there's something <laughs> happening here that is like, in, 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 like, I mean this seriously that like that could be analyzed the way literature is analyzed. Like, there is a psychosexual, thematical something happening there that goes beyond. Oh, I like pretty girls. Um, and I, it's not, it's not Yoko Taro's responsibility to, to do that analysis for the reader necessarily, nor am I damning him for saying, like, I like pretty girls again. I think that's better than just, like, shut up, it's just a game. Like, at least you're fucking yeah. saying. Or,
3: like, uh, H- Hideo Kojima's response to the, you know, the quiet design, like, dude, just embrace it. You want to make sexy girls right. and put them in your game? That's... F- it's not necessarily fine, but at least I can respect that answer. Right, well, so, yeah, for sure.
2: Or it's an honest the answer. The other thing I'll say for two B is I don't feel like she is sexualized by the camera, nor do I think that she's sexualized by the narrative in any way. Um, she seems like a like a say like a person, like an android, like a she seems like a character who. Stuff is happening. She's she's not just an object for the player to to. She's audit. not
4: a sex doll with a butt. No,
2: that exactly. She's, like, she's I don't more think I've than seen her that. butt Once yet, so which okay. maybe that's my fault. Maybe I should use self destruct so I can see that butt. I it's, a, it's I've a... just seen that
5: gif. <laughs> I've seen that gif of like the the water drying. I think maybe yes. it's a mod. Or is that real? No,
2: it's, that seems real because again, but just I haven't done the self-destruct thing, so I haven't seen her butt. Okay. get dry. Well,
5: you're gonna have to do it for science. I'll,
2: I'll plug in the PS4. I brought, you have
5: to see her butt get dry. I'll
2: have to see the butt get dry. I'll check to Thank see you. if the butt gets dry.
5: It's not. She, a she big had wet McMuffin. Yes. Yeah, I was gonna what say what she had. happens. She had a big round wet McMuffin, but it dries.
2: Uh, a big, like a big round dry point. McMuffin sounds yeah, 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 bad. yeah.
5: Ooh. No, no, oh, no, it's a big, it's a big round drying McMuffin. Okay.
2: Huh.
4: I, I, I respect all the above. Like, if you, if you want to be horny McMuffins. in your game, go for it. If you don't want to be, go for it. I just, I just wish. Huh, I just always want people to be thoughtful uh, with all of the above. Like yeah. I, that's that's all I ask. Just be thoughtful. If, you, if you're fucking horny, that's fine. Make an interesting <laughs> be horny. Thanks, oh, you know what? Own your horny. That's all. Just, just don't pretend that it's, you know, anything
2: other than that. That's all I'm saying. Great. So, Rob, you've been playing DnBnFu, a game about the <laughs> yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. So French. here, yeah, here
5: we go. Rob. This is my pivot. <laughs> <laughs> Rob,
2: or I wouldn't make okay. him talk about a, a tabletop war game. And finally, I found the perfect segue. Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so speaking of owning your horniness. Okay. Good. Um, good. Uh huh. <laughs> so. I was introduced uh, this past week to Dien Bien Fu, The Final Gamble, which is a tabletop war game by Kim Conger, uh, and my buddy over at Three Moves Ahead, uh, Bruce Garrick, introduced me to the game, and I've kind of been in a, in a funk lately, because, like... I've been having trouble finding really good, interesting uh, war games. Mm-hmm. It used to be one of my favorite genres, but like a lot of things about it, have become kind of stale. A lot of it just comes down to sort of pushing troops around a board and watching like dice kind of roll themselves, almost. Right. So,
2: like, what you're talking and, about here for like this
1: audience who maybe has not yeah.
2: has no idea what you mean by a tabletop war game? <laughs> do you mean like looking like a, a one of those like people in a tweed suit smoking a cigar, like shuffling pieces around on a board with a stick, like in movies?
1: Not quite like that. Okay. Uh, so, how many hexes are involved? <laughs> there's a lot of hexes. How there's many like witch so hexes many are hexes. involved?
2: How many times do you hex your opponent because they've outsmarted you? Do ah hex on?
1: Not witch hexes. Okay. Uh, it's a it's a hexagonal board. Um, hmm. uh, so Not as good. yeah, it's a it's six sided spaces. Uh, there's lots of counters. Uh, involved, but it's it's a like war alpha game. Counters in... like in like Street Fighter Alpha three or no nope, no nope, mm. not not counters like that. Uh, more like cardboard chits okay. uh, about the size of your what Would you call me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Like, so yes. So uh, the the PC version of this like a a great war game on PC that like covers a lot of the bases is a game called Unity of Command, uh, which came out a couple years ago, which is. Um, it's, it's a very distilled war game. It, it cuts out a lot of the complexity that a lot of war games are uh, sort of bound up with and plays really easily, but still plays with those core concepts, right? Of, like, here are your counters, uh, here's your hexagonal movement, uh, stuff like that. It's it's a great Eastern Front war game, highly recommended. A lot what of war games aren't that simple.
2: Okay, so what separates the Bien Phu from the other war games, which are, like, v- very... In my head, like when I have in the past watched or tried to play a tabletop war game, it means that I lose seven hours of my life, and often feel like I'm—I've never actually made any interesting decisions because yeah. the scenario has boxed me in to play one certain way, and it seems at every move like any troop placement or movement that would be made. Is the only possible one, or that like it's it's scaffold or it's it's spiraled out of control because of something that happened five hours ago, and I don't actually yeah. feel any connection to what's happening. So how does D N B and Fu change that? Also, it's D I E N space B I E N space P H U. Yep.
1: All right. Got it. So it's it's super uh, specific to this this one battle. Uh, so D N B and is basically. Um, when the French were sort of in the final stages of their colonial war in uh, French Indochina uh, against the, the Viet Minh, uh, which which sort of later in the peace settlement became North Vietnam, uh, but they're basically in a colonial war against a communist-inspired uh, indigenous resistance movement uh, that was sort of funded and armed by, by uh, you know communist sponsors. So they're, the war isn't going well. They need one giant battle. They're like, if we can just lure these bastards out into the open, we've got them. So what do we do? We put everyone into the middle of this valley, and they basically say, "Come at me, bro." <laughs> and it goes about as well as you'd expect. Uh, the the, the okay. Viet Minh uh, have have months to prepare. They surround this uh, the, this airstrip uh, series this this airstrip and series of fortresses, and it turns into this really deadly, like two month siege. Uh, where the French paratroopers are trying to hold out against like massive waves of communist forces, the scenario is where it gets really interesting. So the communist, the two sides play completely differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, core functions of the game fung- like behave completely differently. So
2: it's not just like it's in other words, it's not just like. Chess or something where, like, we basically have the same pieces. It's not like Fire Emblem, where, like, you and I basically are still just moving pieces around on a board in exactly the same way. We just start on opposite sides.
1: Yeah, no, you're playing almost different, different games. Like, okay. you have completely different things to consider. Uh, the, the, the big controlling factor for the French is that um, everything, like, maintaining full, like, readiness so that you're fighting with all your resources, uh, like artillery, armor, uh, you're able to heal wounded infantry and get them back uh, back in the field uh, if you have enough medicine all the supplies that make that possible have to be airdropped air in
2: oh cuz you're not and from so you there. have to right cuz you're from France and like and you <laughs> have bases that are not in this one space you have bases that are off the map presumably yeah no
1: you're in the middle of nowhere That's like really you are deep cool. in the back country and okay. you have to get everything flown in from hanoi and so you have to decide what goes on the planes, but here's the other catch: weather can strike, or stuff can just go Good. wrong. So not everything you load onto the planes is going to make it in. Oh, so and that so, that, it so it becomes does that mean that you then
2: have to like do redundancy, where it's like, all right, I fucking really need more ammo for this artillery. I'm going to send three planes of ammo for artillery or whatever the equivalent yeah. is. And then on if the weather hits and one gets through, like awesome. But then there's the other thing, which is like, oh great, they all got through. And now I have. No I really own. wish I had some medicine. <laughs> right. I should have put some <laughs> yeah. medicine on this plane. Shit. And then you, for me, this is why I like games in general, because it's so easy for me to imagine the on the ground dude at that airport being like, oh, thank God, we finally got the supplies. And then just like, opening up all of the all of the plane cargo doors and it's just like huge forty of massive uh, artillery cannon <laughs> shells roll out and it's like <laughs> we need fucking food so bad we're all so hungry why did you only yeah, that, send bullets
1: that absolutely starts to happen in this game and like it can have huge swings like there's some days where like pretty much every plane gets through or there's possibilities i think there's like 18 uh planes that move in every turn there're possibilities that like 16 of those will not get through like it can be like that feast or famine uh so you're trying to plan around this huge like variability in what's actually going to uh reach you and by the way as you begin i think as you begin losing territory around the airbase you start losing more supplies uh because your your drop zone is shrinking sure uh so but the communist player has a different game they're playing uh they've got pretty much limitless manpower but they've got really fragile morale uh, their forces need to, like, constantly feel, feel like they're making progress, so you constantly need to be storming these French fortresses. Uh-huh. Uh, and you've got the numbers, and you've got infiltrators, but as combat takes its toll, your forces start to sort of weaken and as you get more reinfor like more replacements sent in, which are like green troops, uh the morale of your units starts to decline like en masse. Because so it's you'll like have new entire people who
2: haven't seen anything before and who are just like terrified.
1: Yeah. Great. Yeah, pretty Good. much. War is yeah, so war, you'll have everyone. units. Yeah, you've got to get a <laughs> lot of units on the board, but they're just not going to attack. They're going to abort their attacks the moment there's resistance. So it's this like Every, each side has, like, huge advantages, but each side is, like, super fragile as well. And the, the dynamic, like, each side's different strengths sort of play into the other's strengths. So there's some really interesting, uh, like, clashes, right? So how much do the French want to put into saving an individual fort? For them, they can, they can abandon that fort. It doesn't really matter that they hold on to it. But the problem is that if they hold on to it, that really sort of spikes the uh, Viet Minh, Right. Uh, that really hurts them. So, like, how much do you want to put into that? That's and really so every turn is full of this stuff. And I've never played a war game like this, where it's like, it is so specific to this one battle. Um, and right. That's the other every... thing,
2: right? This isn't, again, the thing that separates this from, like, most other. When we think of, and I think most of our audience thinks of war games or, like, strategy games on the PC or, or again, things like Fire Emblem, it's about, like, having a generalizable gameplay system. That
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
2: Then you can reapply elsewhere, like, oh, OK, yeah. like I this is the basic rule set. I, you know, swords beat axes. Axes beat lances. Lances beat swords, and that means that we can deploy that new system every, like, on all these different maps. Or, oh, this one has a river. This one has like weird stone columns that you can destroy. But like, basically, the basic gameplay is the same, and it would feel silly to just have a single game about one big battle.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's kind of the funny thing that you see in the tabletop space a lot, where you've got these designs that are sort of spe- specific to a, a given situation, and this is really unusual, especially in the war game space. Where it's like, uh, this is a really interesting story, and we're going to focus on the things that are singular about that story, and that means the system can't be applied to, say, just any old you know battle in history. It only works really in this one place, but boy, does it work, and every right. turn is just super dramatic. So this, it, was, um, it was a treat.
2: There's a really good Three Moves Ahead episode that you're not on uh, uh, in which Bruce Garrick actually speaks with uh, Kim Kanger, the designer of this game. Um, I remember this because I listened to it in a Popeyes in London, Ontario in May nice. of 2015 wow. because nice. I was like a week away from moving back to New York uh, to start a giant bomb and it was one of the last podcasts I listened to up in, up in Ontario. And it's like fantastic. It's like so good because it gets into all the details of like there are questions when you design a historical game, especially a strategy, any sort of strategy game that has to deal with history, where it's like, okay, we know what happened in this war. We know, for instance, that the Allies win in World War Two. How do you build a game that... Do, do you build the game that makes it so that that is the natural conclusion of the mechanics? If the mechanics just played themselves out, so to speak, that the Allies would win? Or do you make a game that lets... The Axis player succeed in ways that they that the Axis did not succeed historically. We know what happened in the Civil War. Do you make the game that that replicates that exam stru- that same structure so that so that the North wins and the Union is is repaired, or do you make a game that that? Encourages both sides to to have an equal shot at it. Like, how do you do that stuff? And that's a conversation with a designer about that exact question and, and what the kind of... Even what the political ramifications are of trying to be neutral in that position versus trying to, to show a different historical position or, like, it's a really great conversation. Uh, it's, it's Three Moves Ahead, episode 305. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, so, really glad that you finally played this game, Rob.
1: Yeah, no, I was, like, I was kind of... Uh... I thought like I was sort of summoning Everest while I was learning the game, uh, but it, it's, it, it, was, it was awesome. And I wish more games, not just war games, but like just right. more games in general, uh, had this sort of like specific thought-through approach to subject matter, right? Not just using a theme as a skin, but right. really unpacking what that like theme or that topic could lend to the game.
2: And then like sticking with that thing instead of trying to be like, okay, now that we have this core mechanic down... We now it needs now to be with general- Mecha. Well, okay, we'll slow down. We don't say things you can't fucking take back. Well, uh, everything could use some mecha. One of the things that makes Nier cool is it sometimes just has mechs in it. Just because. It's great. Um, Fair. I think we should probably go to questions soon, but first I do just briefly want to talk about a couple of things I did see at PAX besides Mass Effect Andromeda. Um, because I, I had a chance to go by the Annapurna booth. Annapurna is a newish independent publisher that's tied to... I mean, film it, it's a film studio, right? Uh, like Tribeca, right? Is it tied to Tribeca, or is it? What's the? I don't know what the actual like heritage Let's is take
4: there. A, I'm going to take a look on the Google machine. Sure. How about that? Oh
2: well, you know they they were a, they co-produced Todd Salons' m- most recent film, so they've they've done some movies. Um, they've done some movies I don't uh, love. They're but they're behind like, uh, they're behind, uh, uh, like Her no, and yeah.
3: Foxcatcher and Spring Breakers. Spring Breakers. And and,
2: yeah.
1: Oh
5: yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Zero Dark. Th- 30, yeah. I think yes that's correct um,
2: the master um, and are getting into games and I, whenever this happens I always feel really like skeptical um, anytime uh, uh, someone from a different media area comes in and is like oh hey, yeah we want to uh, figure out games we want to do some game stuff and it's like okay here we go <sighs> like what fucking bullshit license property are you going to make out into a platformer now and then I went to that booth and played a bunch of games that I think are really dope. So that's a good feeling. I know, Danica, you and I both played Donut County, which is by... Yes. Uh, or is designed by Ben Esposito. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. uh Whose Twitter name is t- at Torah Horse. Uh, and let me, let, me just, Twitter. let me just pitch you Donut County. All right. Let me figure out the best way to do this. Okay. <laughs> think about Katamari... Uh, Damacy. Is that how you pronounce that word? Yes, thanks. So. Okay. Yes. Now, instead of being a ball, you're a hole in the ground. This should oh. feel relevant, because 2017 sometimes feels like there's a hole in the ground, and it's swallowing us all up. And in this game, you are that hole, and you start by swallowing up little pieces of grass and trash, and then maybe a rock, and then maybe a chair, and soon you're swallowing up ranger stations in this rural place called Donut County. Or maybe it's not called Donut County. It feels like it's called Donut County. Because you, um, you
5: grow and grow with everything that you swallow up.
2: Exactly. Like in Katamari. As you as you successfully eat a small thing, you get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and sometimes there's puzzle elements where it's like, oh, you have to knock over the things in a certain order in order to, like, get access to the thing that you can actually eat. Um, and it's all r- really pretty. It has, like, a sort of... Um, a cartoonish or obviously the thing that jumps to mind right now is night in the woods it's all animal characters who speak the way in this pseudo naturalistic voice this sort of like internet talk that's that you talked about a couple of weeks ago patrick um mm-hmm. where it's like oh yeah this is how me and my friends text at least um and it really works and it's really cute and and down in the hole, the people who have been swallowed are, like, trying to work out what happened as they sit 10,000 feet in the dark uh, <laughs> below the surface of the earth, like, around all the other stuff that's been swallowed by the hole. And also, which is, like, it's bright and colorful, and there's really good music. And that was, like, oh, this is literally the opposite I, of the sort of thing I expected from a serious film studio getting into games. That was the first thing I played there. And that was, like, that set the stage that they are interested in that part of 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 games also the kind of independent space where bright and colorful things happen and not just the independent space where dour things happen. Um, Not that that part is bad. I like those. I like dour games. So
3: (laughs) one reason to be optimistic for Annapurna is that uh, it's being uh, one of the guys heading it up is this guy, uh, Nathan Gary, who was Mm. the head of um, Sony Santa Monica's sort of like independent outreach division. Like he's one of the guys that was, that helped connect uh, Sony with that game company, and it was yeah. you know one okay. of the primary guys overlooking games like Journey. Um, so there's there's reason to think that, and if you think about games like Journey and other games that Sony Santa Monica put yep. out in the in, in partnering with independent developers, you you can immediately see. Uh, the same sort of lineage and totally. taste uh, in this, and so you know, does that mean that they're going to put out the next journey? You know, who knows? But I think in, it, I think there's reason to be optimistic that it's not just a film studio like. Let's get into games. It's like they found folks yes. that really know their shit and are gonna. Uh, you know, I think part of what you know how Nathan would describe his approach to Sony Santa Monica was to like, hey, let's make games that have no right to exist yeah. and put them out there. And I, I would, I haven't talked to him about his approach to this, but my, my guess is that they're taking a similar approach.
2: That's what it feels like. So, so, uh, what remains of Edith Finch, um, definitely has that vibe because it, I mean, so first of all, I guess it exists inside of a context of like what people offhandedly call walking simulators, where you're a a first person character Hmm. who's walking around and there's narration in the world. And it does the thing that certain games and films do where subtitles appear in the world, like kind of painted on structures or painted on a branch or on top of a fence or whatever, as the character narrates. Um, And the first thing I did when I started this game was fuck up and hit the escape key and bring up the pause menu, where I revealed a family tree of the Finch family. Um, And and there were a couple of sketches of some characters, and I was like, oh, oh, is this going to be a thing about, like, what's up with her whole family? Maybe. I don't know. Hmm. And so you walk down this, like, creepy, woodsy path as she's kind of narrating vaguely about, like... The death of a recent family member and how she hasn't been back to the house in a long time and you come around this hill and look up and there is this towering like uh, it it looks like something from shin megami Tensei by way of by way of like british magical realism or something right like it's <laughs> it's like a, a dockside house And then on top of that is, like, a natural extension from the house. Like, oh, they added a second floor. And then it kind of twists to the right a little bit, and now there's another house there. And then another one on top of that, and it twists back the other way. And it looks like Dr. Seuss, if Dr. Seuss committed to being scary a little, um, and then you go in there and... You like sneak through the thing. I just realized now, which is kind of interesting. You sneak through the the kind of like doggy door um, and come back and come in. You have <laughs> you have this key to something. You don't know what the key is is to, and you start exploring the the home. And it feels like a little bit like something like Gone Home, except instead of going through specific, um, you're not like opening books or reading like notes or anything. You're just kind of hearing your character narrate as she Edith Finch like looks around this house. Um and says, like, oh yeah, my mom always said don't go in the basement, or like, oh yeah, I had you know, my grandmother and my mom always got into a fight, or oh, my my uncle, whatever, used to work at the fishery. Um, and that's why there are all this there's like tons of canned salmon everywhere in this house. And then you go up the oh. first set of floors, and on the second floor, there are six bedrooms, and each of them are locked and like sealed with glue. Like hard, mm. clear wood glue. And each of them has a um, a peephole, and you look in, and it's like a room frozen in time. And then Edith explains that there was someone in her family who insisted that whenever anybody died, their their room stayed exactly how it was when they died. Um, oh my god! Oh, and, man. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, and so then you start looking through the peepholes and like trying to figure out like what the fuck is this family? Um, and you end up finding one room with an open door that has a copy of. Um, uh, 10,000, leagues under the sea, 20,000 leagues under the sea, 20,000, uh, under the sea and you, and it has a lock on it and you're like, okay, well I have this key and you open it and lift it. And it's a secret door that opens into one of the locked bedrooms and you go in there and then see a a, a child's bedroom from like 20 years ago or something, um, and begin to live her last day alive. In which wow. she is in her bed, ha- and she's like, she then takes over as the narrator, and then it's the thing that they showed at E3 of this weird dreamlike thing of her turning into. This is really she's in a bedroom, and there's a a bird at the door. I'm just narrating my demo because like it's really. Oh my god! There's a bird at the or at the the door at the at the window pecking at the window, and or like you can hear it out the window, and she's like, um, hearing it, and then the character is like. I'm really hungry. I'm like so hungry. And then like she eats her gerbil's food and then she almost eats her fish. And then she like sees the bird out of the corner of her eye and opens Uh. the window, lifts it and jumps out the window at it and turns into a cat. And the thing oh that happens God. here is like it doesn't dismiss the following sequence which involves her turning to a number of different weird animals while trying to find things to eat including like hawks where suddenly you're a first person hawk diving through like fields like chasing down mice or a shark who's like wow. looking for seals to eat um it doesn't dismiss any of that as just being a weird dream it eventually recenters and you have to re- you have to confront the fact that like the end of that character's that weird sequence was that character confronting that she was like she was holding in this unquenchable hunger, and then that was the day before she died. And whatever happened to her happened to her, and you don't really know what happened to her. And then you're in this oh house full of all these other mysteries. And it was like, okay, like, yeah, I'm fucking in. Fine. Like, yes, yeah. I'm going to play this stupid game. Um, this thing that, like, again, back at E3 when they first showed the the trailer for it was just like, oh, now it's a, now it's a hawk. Now it's a shark. And it looked, like, really goofy is actually fairly... Like serious, so I'm I'm really curious to see how that shakes out. And then the last thing I saw there was Gorogoa, and I'll be very quick on that because I can't get the words right to talk about this fucking game. It's a point and click adventure game that happens in four frames. Your screen is split into four frames. And in each frame, or to start out with, three of the frames are empty, and one of them is a picture. It's a picture of, like, a guy, and he sees something out the window. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna invent a thing really quick to explain how this game works. So, he, I'm just gonna say, like, okay, he needs to get a red ball. This is not from the game, I'm just gonna explain the mechanics through this example. He needs to get a red ball. And so, um... To do that, maybe there's an arrow, and you you hit left on the arrow, and he leaves that room and goes into the room to the left of it, right? Um, And then in that room, maybe there's a picture, and you can zoom in on the picture, uh, or you can click on him to make him go back to the right room or something. But instead, you click on the picture, and then you're like, okay, well, what am I doing with this picture? It's a picture of a clown, right? And then you drag, you go to, like, click on something and realize you're dragging the frame, and then you can move the frame of the, the picture frame into a different frame on your screen. And then zoom out, and you're in a new scene in that frame, so he's so the boy is still in the room where the photo of the clown is, and now you've zoomed out in a different frame to where it's a photo of the it's a photo frame in the back of a circus where a clown is looking down on the ground, sad right or something, and you keep doing this and going in and out of these different sub frames and dragging the sort of like framing object inside of the the scene. ...into different frames to recapture stuff and move it away. I basically... I I solved a puzzle that had to do with temperature. Temperature and clocks and magnetism. By, like, moving gauges around and magnetic objects... ...so that they could see each other in different frames. It's... I can't explain this game. It's really hard. It's a puzzle game. It's like a puzzle adventure point-and-click game... ...that, like, made me a little nauseous to play because... It felt, like, it felt like having vertigo and like, okay, there are a bunch of things happening that are layered in a really weird way. But every time I solved a puzzle, I felt like a genius. So at it least... It sounds a little like
1: the Esper machine in Blade Runner meets like an Escher drawing.
2: Yeah, exactly. Oh, like man. That. That's like exactly right. Like, but, but then again, also the art style is like hand-drawn, very soft and very um, but soft, but also... It feels old. It feels like, you know, it, it's a drawing from 1918. Like, um, and everything has this, like, vague... I don't know what the what the kind of mythological connection is, but there's a, a very strange dragon. Like, a, it looks almost like a, like a feathered dragon, like you would find in Chinese mythology or Aztec mythology or something. Um, and uh, it is really creepy every now and then. Like, every now and then, something sneaks in that is, like overwhelming uh so i'm really excited to play more of that and it was just like one of those things like i came to this booth i almost didn't take this meeting right like i i kind of put (laughs) off this meeting for a week they'd been emailing me and emailing me i was like oh yeah they have some cool looking stuff i guess but i'm not looking to like have that meeting and i walked by the first day and the first thing that i the thing that i noticed and like shout outs to devs who do this they'd set up their booth such that it really felt like it was not on the pax floor proper there were plants there and couches and like what looked like good headphones so it looked like i could actually go maybe play a demo there and not feel like i was being swallowed by packs um (laughs) and i just had like you can hear the the excitement in my voice of describing these games to you all because i've been so i played them two days ago and have wanted to talk about them ever since uh it was like a really surprising showing from a publisher and it's exciting to see new smaller pubs get into this the scene right like I know what I'm going to get from Devolver at this point. And I'm going to get stuff that I like. I watched someone play Ruiner for 15 minutes and Ruiner looks dope. Ape Out, they just announced Ape Out, a, a game that's like, looks like what if Hotline Miami was only three colors and also you were a big gorilla and also there was like free jazz playing, free jazz drumming playing, <laughs> synced to you playing like, oh yeah, that sounds like a game Devolver would make. Um, so it's cool to see another publisher step up in this in this area and like do cool shit. So that's my excitement for the week, I think. Yay.
4: That sounds honestly amazing. Uh, I can't wait to play all of that. That all sounds like my jam, capital letters.
2: Ka- all the way capitals. Oh. Or just do you know when Gorgoa Do you know M? when Gorgo is coming out? Uh, Gorgo, uh, is coming out in the future. In the future. I in
3: think it's sometime future. this year. That, that game has been in development for a long yeah. ass time. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I played a demo of that like four years ago. Yeah.
1: Oh shit. <laughs> and it's
2: okay. Fucking, it's really weird. I don't know. Yeah, but it's oh, worth man. playing. Um. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. It apparently began, it began as a card game inspired by interactive comics and, like, eventually Whoa. became a PC game. So that's great. Good work wow. to... I'm excited to see how the rest of it shakes out. Like, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll keep playing that game and hate it when it actually comes out. Like, maybe it'll get too hard, because some of the puzzles were really fucking hard. Um, but I really, again, felt not just smart, but it feels sometimes like casting a spell. Do you know what I mean? Or like doing a ritual, like, oh, weird. Like, oh, I figured out something about the way reality works that no one else knows. And that's a cool feeling. Oh, that's
4: intoxicating. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. That sounds amazing.
2: So, yes. Um, I think it's probably time for the question bucket. Let's get a couple of quick questions in and then, and then we'll wrap because we all have a lot of work to do today in preparation of being snowed in, except for Rob, who's not going to get snowed in because he is on the warm <laughs> West Coast. A nice place.
1: I'm actually regretful, though, right? Because, like, yeah. I, I always loved snow days so much ever since yeah, I was a kid. Great. They're great. So, yeah, like, I've always worked from home, never had to go to an office, so they're always great. I think I have
4: a... I might, buy, I might be on an ambulance, so...
1: Oh, no, that I don't sounds... Know. My
4: snow day oh. might be very intense.
2: Ooh. Yeah. I have we'll a, um, I think I have to go into the office after this. I'm recording from home because I'm beat. Uh, and, and just to pick up some games that maybe came in for, for playing and writing about. And like, oh, yeah. do I just want to go there just in case I can't go tomorrow because of the snow? And also because, like, good yeah. thought. what if I get snowed in and have a cool game to play? That might be okay. Oh,
5: yeah. No. Assume that assume is you thought. won't be able to go in tomorrow.
2: That's a good point. Okay. Assume, assume that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's just such a pain to get to the office. Anyway. Let's look at the question bucket. If you have a question that you want to get onto Waypoint Radio, you could write it to gamingadvice.com with the subject question or or questions or, you know, just kind of have the word question in there. That would be be good. Uh, This comes in from Mike in Glasgow, who writes, I was listening to the discussion about games you didn't complete because you wanted to be in the world longer. I had this feeling with The Witcher 3. After the main quest, Mm. all of the characters were just gone from the world. To me, it it started feeling lifeless and dead, as all the people I liked in that place weren't there anymore. I couldn't just go visit Triss. I can't just find Ciri. However, I read The Witcher books, and it occurs to me that this might be how Geralt feels at the start of the game, considering some of the places the series goes. So in a way, me feeling like that matches the world and character really well and really makes me want to start the game over again. Or I could just play the rest of the DLC, but the world will be dead again. Has extra fiction outside of the game ever significantly impacted how you felt after your time with the game? Has it made you want to go back? How do you deal with it? Keep up the pseudopods. Mike in Glasgow. <laughs> I think he means the, the ones of just like the weird side, side pods. I don't know. Or just keep, side up, pods. keep up the, the octopi. That's, is that a pseudopod? Is a pseudopod Is Lockup, a pseudopod? I think those are encephalopods, aren't oh, they? What's a pseudopod, then?
3: That sounds like a gross sex thing from Nier.
2: <laughs> yeah,
4: it's doing a sex in, in Nier yeah. with Andrew. Yeah, it's, it's, a yeah it's, do,
3: it's a Oh, I found some pseudopods.
4: Yeah, okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm. So, has anyone you know ever how- gone to exterior, like, the, a novel after you finished a game and are kind of, like, missing the world?
4: I feel like I have a, a weird version of this with Overwatch in that I'm I am now at a point where I'm much more interested in what the Overwatch fan community makes oh, than what Blizzard makes right. about yeah, yeah. Overwatch. Like I'm super interested in the comics and like the cool art that people make, but I haven't actually played Overwatch in months mm. and I'm totally okay with that. I know this is sort of the opposite of that, like being sad about something, but it's like, no, this is I can I can see this, you know, really being a thing for folks.
2: Mm-hmm. Anybody else any anyone who's like dug into i guess here's a question for you, Rob is like you've just played this game, d n b n foo are you eager to go like read about it now about the actual historical battle, or are you content with with your your weekend your tryst
1: oh no no with... no, no. <laughs> all like for me, wargaming and like a reading list go hand in hand right so mm-hmm. and and you can't actually visit. Uh, Bruce Garrick and talk war games without having books pressed into your hand on the way out the door. Uh, he's, he's very much one of those people where he's like, oh, you haven't read this? Well, that's, that's unacceptable. We must resolve this right away. Uh, he's a bit like a very giving uh, Mr. Norrell in Jonathan Strange <laughs> and Mr. Norrell. Uh, so yeah, usually those those two things go hand in hand. And a lot of times they they do enrich the experience quite a bit because you get a lot of Uh, context that would otherwise be missing. Right now I'm playing a a Napoleonic war game, Scorch War Waterloo. Not great, but it's pretty good. But what you wouldn't get from the war game that you do get from reading uh, this book I'm reading, uh, which is The Campaigns of Napoleon uh, by, I think, David Chandler, uh, is that it's very much like the last last hurrah, the last ride. The entire campaign has this feeling of these armies that have been at war for about 25 years, and they're old, and they're tired, Uh and nobody's really at the prime. And this is the last fight these guys are going to have. And it's, it's the, it, gives, it gives it this weird, like, kind of sad yet epic feeling, right? That, you know, everyone's best days are kind of behind them. And you wouldn't get that just from playing the game. Right. But now playing those scenarios with that context changes their meaning.
2: That's really interesting. I wonder for, I mean, I don't have to wonder. I've heard the same thing said about The Witcher from people who've, who've gone into that game having read a lot of the short fiction and, and some of the novellas and such that like their understanding of Geralt and especially of, like some of his relationships with those characters changes dramatically. Um, I, I, I could see that being the case in a lot of places in games. Uh, anyone else have a, have a like a, a third, uh, not a third party, but like, you know, an exterior thing that they connect to a specific game or, or a feeling of like hunger after leaving a game and being like, I need to scratch this itch elsewhere. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I
4: know. Yeah. For me I, I definitely
3: <laughs> They're also also like generally speaking they just have not usually yeah, they, you know I captivate. Cap- I, there aren't that many worlds that left that
1: mark on me afterwards. Um You never looked at the Metro books for instance? Um
3: I d- mm, no cuz like my experience in those games was not about the large in fact like the storytelling in those games is pretty bad and like the but it's the the atmosphere of those games is what draws me to metro not the um actual like if you actually like look at a wikipedia summary of like the original metro 2033 and then what they do in the sequel with like the supernatural <laughs> stuff it's bad yeah. it's not good um but but uh yeah so i don't know i generally speak i don't find that there have been game worlds and but i'm not i also can't say there're necessarily a whole lot of um like other media that you know with the rare exception of like when you know, a a new character is uh, sort of debuted in a a Marvel film that I'm not familiar with because I didn't grow up reading comics. Like, sometimes I'll go back and read a couple of series to just sort of get a better sense of where that character came from. But uh, it's not really something I do in games too much.
1: Wait, I have a quick side question. Sure. It's related, but sort of the inversion of this. Anyone ever, like, get into some, like, I don't know. Call it side content or or something in a different medium about a game that turns out to be more enjoyable than like the game it's related to, <sighs> right? Probably. Do you have something in mind? Yeah. Do you have a thing specifically? I, like I'm remembering uh, that Halo Forward Unto Dawn uh, series. Which got me really excited for the direction Halo is moving with, like Uh, Halo Four, I want to say. And then I was like, "Oh, you aren't moving that direction at all." Like Forward into Dawn is this kind of interesting, like uh, Battlestar Galactica esque take on uh, what like grunts in the in the Halo universe. Are, like we go through and what that what that story looks like uh and it touches on a lot of really cool themes about like militarism uh and you know a societal elite versus uh you know sort of the the broader universe right. they're exploiting and then an, and an, and an and you're then like oh like, man, man four, halo
2: an ancient evil awakened right like that's an, <laughs> yes! a, a, big, yes! a big skull man happened so skull man uh, yeah uh, his name is the, the Yeah, the shelters Ooh, oh. Fallout Shelter. Fallout Shelter's way better than mm. Fallout 4. Mm, that's an I interesting know. one. Oh. I, don't, I don't know that Fallout Shelter is actually... I, mm, I had a, it is. That's a,
1: that's a brutal claim. Oh, man. It I don't
2: is. know that it holds up. I think Fallout Shelter came to the right place at the right time. I played a lot of Fallout Shelter.
1: I hear it's a lot bigger now, though. There's more going on than there used to okay. be. I maybe get. I'll take a look at it again. I don't. Right, Fallout fall Four is just bad, so you know, yeah, that's, yeah. I, don't, uh, think I don't,
4: uh,
2: don't think it's that great. I like to be than honest, most, but I but I, I'm not here to defend Fallout Four. I've I'll yeah. save my rhetorical bullets for another day, for another for other shit. I do the opposite thing of this, which is I have always like gone to games to scratch the interactive itch of a an interest that I have. Right, like. Whenever there was a new Gundam show out, I would go to play a mech game. Not even necessarily a Gundam game. Like, oh, I really want to play Armored Core now because, you know, Gundam Wing 00 was was on air at the time or something, right? Uh, where I want to play Virtual On for that same reason. Or you know, it can even be a little muddier than that, even, which is just like I was reading Kazuo Ishiguro's um, The Buried Giant, which has like a certain like high fantasy melancholy to it. It's about about an older couple, kind of, who don't really have great track of their memories in a kind of Arthurian, or, like, pre-Arthurian fantasy world, sort of. Like, it's, it's, I don't know, there's a weird, there's a whole bunch of weird shit around that book, in that, like, he insists it's not a fantasy novel, because he's, like, he's a real literary writer, and it fucking pisses me off, but I still think it's a pretty (laughs) good book. Um, And because of that I ended up reinstalling or installing the Shadow of the Colossus HD um like remaster not cuz there's any direct analog but there was a sort of tonal similarity of like lost memory and like ruins of of, of a, a better world that no one could quite get a, a hold on. Um, so I do, I do stuff like that. I kind of go the opposite way. I was just like, I really want to yeah. scratch this itch with a game. Uh, I mean, this goes back to when I was like 12 and was like, would get up early to watch Dragon Ball Z and then rush to play street fighter alpha on on the playstation or whatever and like because that was the closest thing i had at the time to a dragon ball z game um so it's 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 deep um let's do one more quick question and then we will and then we'll we'll wrap up this comes in from um brian who says dear danielle and staff Legendary film critic Roger Ebert was often credited as saying whether I loved a movie or hated it by the time you're done reading my review you should have a good idea if you'll like it. Do you think this philosophy of criticism is workable for video games film is different in that everyone who sees a film is going to see the same film exception the theatrical release of Clue even if they experience it differently. (laughs) But with interactivity and custom and customability inherent, in, inherent to video games, every person will, will have a unique experience. The reviewer who plays Hitman and never turns off the guidance will have a totally different reaction than the one who just starts throwing axes everywhere. Mario Maker was, totally, was a totally separate thing for people with a huge Twitter following. Throwing levels out into the ether is vastly different than sending them out to 100,000 people already predisposed to like it. Uh, and offer feedback. I guess what I mean is, our video games, our exp- video game experience is too personal. I mean, that's for reviews a, an excellent mean.
4: question, and it just sort of points to that games are just everything to all people, and can be, and that's a great and wonderful thing. But I certainly think there's plenty of value uh, in a review. I, I do also think, though, that it it goes a little further than that. I think you need to sort of establish whose tastes align with yours. Uh, sort of even before that, like you you will know if a game is for you, if I write this review in such a way. But you also kind of need to be familiar with, like, my work and my tastes as well. I, I do think it, you, there's a little bit of a broader context there that's helpful, but I, I think that's a perfectly good framing of it. I think you'll you'll find people whose tastes align at least somewhat with your own if you do a little bit of homework and you and you look around a little bit, since there are plenty of folks out there writing about games at this point,
2: which is a good thing. And for that matter you should do that with film critics also. Like I I don't, oh, I sure. don't know. Yeah. I guess it's interesting because this question actually gets at or towards or kind of gestures towards what Ebert's entire argument was against games as art which which I think <laughs> is often un, maybe not unfair like understandably dismissed instead of engaged with but it's it's a little frustrating because i think it's important to engage with his argument and his argument is this is that like that degree of differentiation in play experience means that there can't be a relationship between author and and reader or or player which i disagree with obviously but like that is the argument he's actually making is that you know, the the famous example he gave was like, you could get, you could play, if you Romeo and Juliet was a game, you could play it so that Romeo and Juliet got together and lived happily ever after. And so that somehow spits in the face of the author, which means that meaning is not, the author's meaning is not conveyed. Um, and that is one way of thinking about art. And I did a whole panel about why it's not the only way last weekend. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: um, but I think that it's, uh, for me then, the, the thing that this ends up wrapping back around to is, I think I disagree with the Ebert line that that reviews that the or I guess he could do whatever he wants with his reviews. Like if his goal was was to convey the information about whether or not his reader would themselves like a movie, that's totally fine, but I don't think that that is the standard by which all reviews or criticism or analysis should be held. That's one type of review that I'm glad is out there, but it can also be It can also be a a hamstring to to do that sort of writing. Like when I reviewed Grow Home for uh, by Ubisoft a couple of years ago for Gamespot, like writing in their style meant that I could only speak to its like key features and the way it executed on those and not the context that i experienced the game in which was thinking about ubisoft's weird small studio pseudo indie thing that they were trying to do at the time um it meant that i couldn't really talk too much about the kind of like more than just the piece's effect of looking out across the world because there isn't really a category for that to talk about in. Um, yeah. And so there are ways in which different styles and guides actually constrain writers or encourage them to, to tackle things differently. Like I, I, We get lots of people who are probably great writers who write in to our uh, to us and say, hey, I'd love to write about blank and all they want to say is it's a good game or it's a bad game. And like, well, we're not <laughs> yeah. going to publish that because that's not there are lots of places to write about that. We want a little bit more than that. We need, we need a a thesis of some sort. Um, and so like different outlets have different, have different interests. Um, and I'm glad that we have the ones that we have, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have a disagreement with, you know, or I think that other people who are doing it the other way are fucking up or something. Uh, I'm curious, everybody else, like as readers, what do you look for in a review or, or in criticism? Hmm. Like
3: when you, that's a big question, you
2: know what I mean? Like, I know what it feels like when I've read something I like. And it, that can be, again, that can be the consumer-driven, like, I'm glad I know about this now. I know I don't want to spend my money on it. Or it can think, be. Yeah, for, for, yeah,
3: for me, it's a reaction or an experience, right? Like So it's rather than checkboxing, like, you know, we joke about how many weapons or how many levels. Um, you know, I can go to a website like howlongtobeat.com if I want right. to, to know how long it's going to take to beat a game. Whereas... Um, you know, like in your write-up of Breath of the Wild, like, you know, there wasn't a checkbox, it was, like, conveying a sense of adventure that you had while playing the game, which I think is more useful as a device for conveying w- what makes that game interesting than it is to, like, and then here are how many dungeons there are, and here's how the dungeon, you know I mean? Like, if those things feel like a natural part, an actual extension of what you want to say, that's fine. So, like, for me, like, I'm always looking... I'm someone that appreciates the author being part of what they write, and right. that doesn't necessarily mean telling like a personal story about how their dad died. in like every story, that's just like conveying their experience with a game in whatever direction that takes them. Because I, uh, I don't. This is partially because I'm a deeply informed consumer, right? Like there are different uh, layers of people sure. on what they're looking for, right? Like maybe someone that goes to IGN or GameSpot, they're just looking for like, ah, oh, man, like I is that new mass effect any good or you know right. should i just I go play ad zelda ad. like right. there's something totally uh utilitarian and useful to that existing but for me as someone that doesn't need To know whether it's good or bad, I'm more interested in your reaction to it, and I can extrapolate plenty from there because I have the vocabulary and the understanding, and I've seen trailers. Like, so for me, as someone who's informed and appreciates video games as a medium, and it goes beyond just whether it's good or bad, for me, in criticism, and this is true for all my, you know, sort of hobbies, like horror movies and other things like that, I don't care if it's good or like I can extrapolate that from the experience or the reaction you had to it, and then I can sort of surmise. What that means vis a vis me.
2: Do you, does anyone remember a specific time when, like, critics were clearly split on a thing and you couldn't quite tell what you would think of something until you actually played it or saw it or read it? I'm trying to think of any like big divisive things in the last few years that were like.
3: Well, I mean, like you know, Far Cry Two is a great example (laughs) of a game like that. Uh, So we could get our get our our Far Cry Two reference in. That that's a game that
4: thumbs right there. Yeah,
3: was 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 I think the uh, general uh, quote unquote consensus on that game was that it was a bad game or, or i think more uh it more that it was misunderstood i think there are lots of reasons to dislike that game yep. um they are legitimate if you if you don't necessarily subscribe to the things it does interesting um but i think that's a, an example of a game that if you were just to go look at you know the metacritic or the reviews from a handful of critics that you know it, are not just people writing for IGN and GameSpot. And I don't say that to disparage those websites as right. much as sure. there were a lot of reviews that said Far Cry Two doesn't work. Um, right. It's
2: literally and, broken because I have malaria and my guns break. This I can't <laughs> complete this stuff. Yeah, and instead, like that was you know a
3: small group of of critics and enthusiasts like started championing that game and have tried you know over the years have I think shifted um, the understanding of that um, or at least like been out there with the the pom poms. But I think that's a game that there was a uh, uh, the way some people talk about it is so far removed than the way that it was sort of generally critically yeah. Uh, received. Yeah, I think it's a really good example. Danica, is this... <laughs>
4: Maybe Heavy Rain is another Yeah,
3: Heavy Rain is definitely potential. one. <laughs> Any of the games from that dude are like that, yeah. honestly.
2: Yeah. Even yeah. even interior, like, even to me, even just my own opinions feel divisive about...
4: Yes, yes. It's like,
2: I, when I think about my time with Heavy Rain... There were lots of times that I was having a really good time. Like, a really good time. There's
4: some cool and smart things in those games, for sure. Like, the way they do mundane... We had a mm-hmm. piece very recently about the way they do mundane actions, and it's kind of brilliant. And then there's also, like, stripping for no reason.
1: Yeah, that does <laughs> happen,
2: doesn't it? Yeah, it <sighs> does. But that scene with the fucking finger is something That's else. That's something else, man. It the is. party scene and beyond? Great! Yep, it is awesome. It's a, yeah. a good scene in Beyond. And then there's lots of terrible scenes in Beyond. Yeah, like the desert. <laughs> God, that whole yep. desert stuff. Oh, Lord. Both <laughs> deserts. There are two deserts in Beyond, yes. I've just remembered. And both of them are bad. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Oh, David Cage, what are we going to do with you? I don't that's know. the real question. Have this
3: have the same exact conversation later this year. Except we're be way more
2: frustrated because it's gonna be his fucking Android racism game, so Oh yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. Yep. I think that's gonna do it for us. Let's go out on David Cage. Thinking about <sighs> David Cage.
3: <laughs> I hope that's the box quote that they put on is uh, is uh, Austin Walker Waypoint.
2: <laughs> Close your eyes and think of David Cage. That's Austin Walker said it. Oh wow. Yep. Oh boy. That's it. That's Yep. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I, mm, have I mentioned the thing that he said when I saw that game when I saw D- Detroit Beyond Human? Is that what it's called? Oh, please do. Is that what it's called? De- Detroit yes. Beyond Human? Become Human. Become Human or Beyond Human? I think Whatever. it's Beyond, right? The fact that it's... No, become, it was Beyond Two Souls, it's, wasn't it? It's be, yeah, it's Beyond <laughs> Two Souls. It's Detroit Become Human. It's,
4: Detroit Heavy Rain Two Souls, right.
2: Right. Okay. I saw that trailer. I saw the Behind Closed Doors demo at E3. And after... Every, everyone was, oh my god, this, this good android negotiator saved that little girl's life. It's unbelievable. And then he said... Uh, I want to be clear that this game... I'm not going to do... I can't do David Kidd's... That's probably racist. Right. He yeah. said... <laughs> I could do... Oh, I want to do his voice so bad. I'm not going to... But he I said... I think it's
4: racist, because he's French. I don't think that's a Well, I, I
2: also just think the voice uh, is going to be bad, game so... Is, but he, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, not like Blade Runner, because... Uh, you see, in this game, you are playing as an android detective who is good, uh, and in all the other worlds, the androids are bad. Uh, and so, unlike Blade Runner and Robocop, wow. um, you, are, you are the android yourself. And it's like, which version of Blade Runner did you see, dawg? Because I got bad news about Deckard! <laughs>
5: Uh, <laughs> that was a great accent, by we the way. We want to uh, was pretty fucking hum- good,
2: humanize the androids. We think that in uh, the, the Terminator, the, they are the bad guys, but here, they are the good guys. And it was like, I can't be in this room with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it was really infuriating. It was really infuriating. Oh. Um, and also, it's going to be about like classism and racism, so like, that's going to be good.
1: No. Well, he's always had such a handle on the nuances of American life. Um, <laughs> oh, I god. think if there's anybody <laughs> equipped to talk about uh, mm. like postmodern post-industrial <sighs> Detroit, it's it's definitely David Cage. What what uh-huh. license
2: what David Cage what license would you like to give David Cage to make a game about? What like Bioshock <laughs> Infinite? Oh my <laughs> god, why would you say that out loud? Oh my god. Could you imagine David Cage's Bioshock That's,
4: Infinite? I'm going for the
2: most extreme thing that I can think of. Oh, my God.
4: <sighs>
0: and David that, Cage's and
4: Bioshock note. Infinite.
2: There is always a, a lighthouse. There is always a girl. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody, I am Austin Walker. You can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore Walker. Let's go around this virtual table real quick and see who else is where on the internet. Danica Herod, where are you?
5: Um, I am on the internet uh, 24-7. No, not 24-7, but you can find me at Danica Herod.
2: Uh Rob Zachney, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Patrick Kleffick. Find me at Patrick Kleffick. And Danielle Riendo.
4: At Danielle or I on Twitter.
2: And, of course, you can find everything we do at waypoint.vice.com, bazinga.zone, waypoint.dog.arf, digitalpyramids.com, all the best URLs. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash waypoint, facebook.com slash waypointvice, youtube.com slash waypointvice. If you ever have an issue watching one of our videos on the proprietary Vice video player, just go to the YouTube. They're, They're there. You can watch them there be sure to go to our Twitter or Facebook to watch the incredible Waypoint Cribs episode that we shot while in Boston. Uh, (laughs) I'm pretty happy with it, frankly. Um, Thank you to Boen for letting us use the song Miss You off of his EP panel machine. Uh, You can find out info about him at waypoint.zone. You can go buy that song. That song is dope. Please give him money for it. And as always, stick around. We have some good shit coming this week, just like every week. As long as we survive the snowstorm, (laughs) the impending (laughs) doom of this blizzard. Yes. Keep us in your hearts. Uh, And until next time, peace.
5: Planning for your next trip?